All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 9. We're studying the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter 9. We're going to look at the entire chapter. I just want you to know that so you can be fortified. 41 verses. The topic this morning, Jesus heals a man blind from birth by applying clay mixed with saliva on his eyes. The title of our message, Here's Mud in Your Eye. (laughs) Father, as we get into this text, we want to understand uh, the joy and wonder of this physical healing, but also see it as our spiritual healing. Uh, Lord, we were blind, but now we see things of the Spirit, because you came and revealed yourself to us. You aided us by the Holy Spirit to make a decision to trust you. May we see you in every verse in this chapter in a powerful, glorious way as the Savior of the world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The theater erupted in whooping and hollering when Matt Murdock appeared in Spider-Man No Way Home. Murdoch is a lawyer by day, daredevil by night. He does both as a blind man. Blind superheroes hone their other senses to compensate. The Pharisees were blind anti-heroes who honed the traits of their sin nature to condemn. Their superpowers were things like pride, self-righteousness, disdain for others, conceit, selfishness, prejudice, rudeness, etc., They thought they could see, but Jesus will diagnose them as spiritually blind. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you acknowledge you are blind, you will see. But number two, when you insist you can see, you are blind. Let's take a look at the first five verses about acknowledging our blindness. In the finale of Seinfeld, Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, and George witnessed an overweight man named Howie getting carjacked at gunpoint. They made fat jokes while Kramer filmed the theft on his camcorder. Howie found a policeman nearby who arrested the group on a duty-to-rescue violation that required bystanders to help. The disciples saw the man born blind. They ignored him and began a discussion about sin and suffering. It seems to be a duty-to-offer-spiritual-rescue violation. So verse 1 of chapter 9, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their question reveals their belief that sickness is always directly associated with a person's sin. It's an ancient attempt to answer the questions suggested by a loving, omnipotent God allowing suffering Job would be the premier example in the Bible as his so-called friends came to comfort him and then turned into uh, condemners and accusers. Uh, Their theme basically was you must be in sin uh, and so you must confess your sin because God, uh, you know, blesses the righteous and he condemns the unrighteous. Of course, we know from seeing behind the scenes in the first two chapters of Job, it is precisely because he is righteous that he is being tested so that uh, the Lord can prove his love to him and vice versa. 
but a lot of people believe this. Obviously, this was the situation in the first century among the Jews. I think people in the church still believe this. We don't say it as much, but you know, think, oh, so-and-so, maybe there's sin in their life. And, uh, you know, uh, now there's sin in your life. So, <laughs> you know, for thinking that. So let's be careful. And so the disciples... Uh, believing that your sin brought sickness or affliction, they wondered how this man could be born blind before he had an opportunity to commit any real sin. Could he have sinned in the womb, or could it be uh, could he be afflicted on account of the sin of his parents? And so this was their theology. So they had a wrong theology that sickness is always the result of sin, and naturally, since they started off at a wrong place, they ended up at a worse place. Now they were starting to say that you sin in the womb. I mean, obviously you have a sin nature in the womb, but you're not, you know, the Lord isn't up there saying that's the fifth time today you hit your mom. <laughs> that's not what's going on. And, and so, uh, they, so they were ending up, or maybe the parents sinned, and now it's falling back on the children. And so they were getting way, way out of line. There was a begging, mom, uh, or a blind man rather, and Jesus' disciples felt it was the perfect moment to have a theological discussion about him. May that never be said of us. The disciples had witnessed all manner of healings and were witnesses of Jesus' constant compassion. Nevertheless, they put help on hold to have this debate. We can get lost in our theology at the expense of sharing Jesus. I remember years ago, I'm not sure if they still do it, but there were uh, groups of Christians who would go to evangelistic uh, events, uh, like stadium events, but other big events as well, and they would protest them as non-unbiblical and satanic because at the end of them there would be an altar call where people were urged to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their particular theology didn't allow for any decision-making or cho choosing or coming forward, and so they had declared it all a heresy. And so inside, you've got people hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and getting saved, and outside you have so-called Christians telling them that that's wrong and that it shouldn't be done that way, simply as a result of their own theology. And so this happens today in many different ways. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. One of the Bible uh, paraphrases, uh, uh, paraphrase versions rather, renders this, You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. F.F. F. Bruce writes, and he says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of this blindness. To think so would be an aspersion on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by the recovering of his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And others, seeing the work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. So you get what that means. F.F. Bruce, smart guy, good guy to read. Jesus wasn't saying, uh, my father and I chose him to be blind from the womb so that we could be glorified 20 or 30 or 40 years after my incarnation. Uh, no, that's not it at all. Uh, he, was, he encountered a blind man in a fallen world. 
and it gave him an opportunity to heal him and bring glory to God. We know who sinned. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. All subsequent sin and suffering and death stem from their sin. This man's blindness is a manifestation of sin, not the result of his sin in particular. Now, suffering and affliction can be a direct consequence of sin. There are times in the Bible when God acts immediately or, uh, if not immediately, over time on a particular sin. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament lied to the Holy Spirit, and God gave them an opportunity to repent, and when they didn't, he killed them. So, so that's an, a, a case where sin... Uh, you know, had its immediate consequence. But for the most part, uh, that doesn't happen. And it's not happening here because this man was born blind before he'd done anything wrong. The man was born blind because we live in a fallen world where awful, terrible things happen as a result of what Adam and Eve chose and of our inheriting their sin nature and their genetics. And so the world is messed up. This man was born blind. I am a man who was born to have Parkinson's disease. My wife was born to have multiple sclerosis. Some of you are born to get cancer at some point in your life, or you have it already. Uh, so did God create you that way on purpose so that he could be glorified? No. It's the result of living in a fallen world. Uh, if you're me with my genetics and you move to the valley, you're going to have a neurological disease. <laughs> That's the way, it, you know, so now if I had known that, I might have, you know, took a boat the other way like Jonah did. But, you know, that's the, that's the thing. It's not God's fault. We live in a fallen world. He's done everything to reverse that fall. And the only thing that we can accuse God of is being long-suffering. Because he has a plan to end all of this suffering and to put everything right. We read about it in the book of the Revelation. But it requires the end of his mercy towards people to get saved. At some point, uh, everything stops and it's too late. And so if you, the only thing we can accuse God of is long-suffering. And so that's what's going on in this passage. And listen, even if this man had caused his own blindness by sinning, Compassion and the gospel are what he deserved. You know, you're not to look at him and say, well, he must have sinned, and so, you know, it's, that's why he's suffering. Okay, let's help him in his suffering. Let's bring him the good news. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me away while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This can be translated, we must work the works. That's in agreement with what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14, where he says, you are the light of the world. And so when Jesus left and was no longer on the earth at his ascension, now we are the light of the world and we do his works. And so when he says night is coming, when the light is removed, it isn't when Jesus was taken to heaven. It's some other time. And since we remain on the earth as light doing his work until we are removed in the rapture and the resurrection, the night is probably uh, that he's describing would be the great tribulation. And so this is probably a reference to the resurrection and rapture of the church and the tribulation. Jesus came as the light of the world into pitch darkness where every human is born blind. Dr. David Gooding writes and he says, as any practical evangelist will tell you, they find people that by God's gracious Holy Spirit have been worked upon, their conscience has been aroused. Maybe they haven't gotten to the point of complete illumination, but they're stopping to think. 
And God in his mercy brings a preacher to them and these folks have been prepared and when they hear the gospel, they believe. Hold on to that thought while we look into the remaining verses where we learn that when you insist you can see, you are blind. If this chapter were a game show, we'd call it Silly Sabbath because we'd be searching for absurd Sabbath traditions and we're going to encounter a top five entry for sure. Verse 6, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the man with the clay. Making clay was a violation of the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. A Jewish site I consult often said this, kneading, as in kneading dough, K-N-E, as in uh, bread dough, is forbidden on Sabbath. This encompasses not just bread dough, but this is encompassing all activities which, like kneading, join small particles into one mass using liquid and apply to both foods and non-foods. And so this, the, the Jews would look at the Sabbath and they'd say, let's talk about kneading. Okay. It seems like work. And so you can't do any work on the Sabbath. And so then they say, okay, no kneading on the Sabbath. Do all your kneading before the Sabbath. If you're mixing liquid with substance for kneading, maybe it affects more than just bread, okay? So technically, if I make mud pies on the Sabbath with saliva or any liquid and mud, I am violating the Sabbath. I'm so glad we weren't alive to choose whether or not to be Pharisees. Uh, some of us would be. I might be. And it's just ridiculous. No reason is given here for him going to the pool of Siloam, but it says in verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It does show us that God leads us in different ways and that he likes to shake up things so that we can't put our walk on autopilot. We can't say, well, this is how God always heals. Uh, me, for one, I'm glad he doesn't heal using spit and mud too often. You know, that's, that's a little bit out there. Uh, it's interesting uh, again, we can't know why he did this, but in the Bible, we, you know, uh, God created who out of the dust of the earth? Uh, Adam. And so it could be a reference here. Jesus could be exampling for them that uh, not only can he do this miracle, but he actually is the creator of, of sight and things to be seen. And so there's always little rabbit trails here and nuances that we can go down. Just give that some thought. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this he who sat and begged? Some said, yeah. Others said, he's like him. And he said, I'm right here. Yeah, it's me. It can be quite a shock when you visit an infirm person whom you have not seen in a long time. They don't look like themselves. Likewise, I believe if you saw someone who had been infirm for a long time, now in perfect health, you might not recognize that person either. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Two sentences, 31 words, 10 seconds. That's how long it took the previously blind man to share his testimony about Jesus Christ. It was long enough when coupled with his transformed life to be significant. Here's a dare. Write your testimony to come in under 15 seconds with 40 or fewer words. It's a big task, uh, but I think it'd be a great devotional time. Verse 13, 
They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Unimaginable joy must have filled this man's heart. He would wanted to see everything with a sense of contagious wonder. I mean, we don't have to get too into it, but think about it. You've never seen anything. All of a sudden, you're fully sighted. You don't know what water looks like. You don't know what people look like. You don't know what nature looks like. You don't know what buildings look like. All you've ever done is touch things in a Helen Keller kind of way, you know. And now you see everything. You want to just run around and see everything. First stop on his sight tour, the Pharisees. His peers thought he needed to see what violating the Sabbath was like. What kind of a world do we live in? Where they said, okay, you can see? Well, that's good. Uh, you know, put that on hold for a minute while we go see the Pharisees. And then the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I see. One sentence, 12 words. This comes in in under five seconds. For the times you don't have... Uh, 10 seconds to share your testimony. Uh, this is an abbreviation. And so verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, okay, so how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, uh, he's a prophet. Prophet is high praise but not in comparison to the sinless Son of God. He didn't know Jesus, but he was being prepped by God the Holy Spirit to meet him. His eyes were opened gradually, and Jesus is going to open his spiritual eyes, in a sense, gradually as well. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The Pharisees are wicked uh, schemers. It could be, you know, everybody knows about this pressure to not disobey the Pharisees. It could be that they were wanting his parents as an out to say, yeah, that's our son, but his blindness is really fake. He's been faking it all these years and maybe kind of side with them. Instead, they give an insightful, if sad, uh, explanation. Well, yeah, that's our son, but you know what? We don't know anything about this. We don't know what he's doing. He's kind of our crazy son. What a sad thing. You who are parents, if your child who had been born blind could miraculously see you for the first time, wouldn't you just be ecstatic? Instead, you're afraid of the Pharisees because it was the Sabbath. Fear overcame their joy, robbing them. Religious fear is awful. It robs you of assurance and of joy. As an example, I would cite that a huge percentage of what Christians post on social media is religious fear-mongering. I came across this this week, a long discussion on this post. Uh, the author said, and he's a decent guy, he said, and I quote, the only reason you feel like raising your hands at a high point in worship 
is that your expectations have been shaped by 20th century Pentecostalism. If you lived before 1900, it wouldn't occur to you to raise your hands while singing. Really? So for 1900 years, no church anywhere on the earth had a worship service where people raised their hands in praise to the Lord, even though in the Old Testament, a lot of times that happened. Because you've been infected with 20th century Pentecostalism. Talk about a COVID booster. I mean, you know, <laughs> Doc, you got to help me. What is it? I got my hands in the air. It's insane. Nobody can make that. It, what a, but you know what? It's fear mongering. Especially a young Christian thinks, oh, I, I like to raise my hands, but I guess no Christian in the history of the Bible has ever done that. And so if I raise my hands, and there's a lot, this is an easy example, there's a lot of uh, subtle fear mongering that goes on because we're fearful. We want to be sure that we're worshiping the right way and studying the right way and, and you know, that we're right on track. And it's easy for people to, to knock us off and say, with some kind of legalism, oh, really, you believe that or you do that? And so be careful out there among the English is what we like to say. It's the Amish thing, remember? Because be careful out among the English. So they again, verse 24, called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees could not see beyond the things they had added to the Sabbath. Their Savior was declared a sinner by their traditions. Listen, Jesus always kept the Sabbath. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that Jesus was violating the Sabbath on purpose to get their attention. He was, the only thing he ever violated was their traditions that were anti-Sabbath. Everything Jesus did was to obey God. He obeyed the Sabbath in its spirit. And certainly, anybody, you would think, who could be so shallow, so soft, uh, short-sighted to think that this was spiritual, but that's where religion leads you. Now, this man born blind brings the discussion back to his testimony, and he, they said to him again, what did he do to you, verse 40, 26? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. I don't think that the man born blind was being disrespectful. Do you also want to become his disciples was kind of like a call to salvation. Paul the Apostle, when he was before the authorities of Rome, at one point, one of the guys said to him, are you trying to convert me? And Paul said, sure, why not? That's what this is all about. And so I, I think the blind man was being used to say, well, do you guys want to get saved and have your blindness taken away? He started a game of blind man's rebuff with them in verse 30. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if a, uh, anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This, is the, this guy is going to go on to be an apologist 
and to write apologetics, you know, because he just basically looks at these so-called smart spiritual guys and said, how is this possible? It's not even logical what you're suggesting, let alone spiritual. I think it's safe to say God the Holy Spirit was helping this man born blind to say these things. He certainly gave him the boldness to do it because this is going to result pretty quickly in him being cast out. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sin and you are teaching us. They subscribe to that same theory that we talked about earlier that sin is the consequence or uh, sickness is the consequence of sin. And so uh, then they say they cast him out. Uh, Pharisees casting you out was a big deal uh, because it means that you were excluded from all Jewish activities and fellowship. We would use the word excommunicated. In a tribal society where everybody lived, you know, probably in the same town they were born in and those kinds of things, to be excluded from that community, uh, it meant I mean, to be an outcast in the wilderness, you know. And so luckily, this guy started a t-shirt business, uh, though I was blind, now I see, uh, was the first Christian t-shirt. No, you don't go for that? This does illustrate that new life in Jesus is incompatible with the self-righteousness of keeping the law of Moses. Instead of being corrupted by a false sense of observing the Sabbath, the man born blind would experience the rest and the freedom that the Sabbath was intended to bring. Physically, he'd be persecuted, but spiritually, he'd be free. And being cast out was really the best thing that could have happened to him so that he wasn't corrupted by the teaching of these Pharisees. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? I remember there was a, a, a period of time, I don't want to go into the whole thing because it's too time-consuming, but there was a period of several days when I was coming to Jesus Christ, is all I can explain it, when my mind was in kind of a, a brain fog, and I was mulling over some things that I had been shown by the Holy Spirit in prophecy, and a friend of mine who I worked with, he had become a Christian about a year earlier and had been sharing Christ with me. So he found out that I was, you know, in this state and he took me to breakfast and he exhausted everything he knew, he told me. And, and I just looked at him and, and he finally, you know, those of you, who watches the show alone at the beginning, they go like that. And so he just huffed and he said something and I go, well, I just want to be saved. <laughs> And so, and he led me in the sinner's prayer, but he could have saved all of that breath uh, and all, but, uh, and so this guy, he says, well, who is he? You know, yeah, I'm ready to believe right now. Now, we mentioned that God, the Holy Spirit, prepares hearts to hear the gospel and believe, and that's what he was doing in this blind man, preparing his heart, and as he came back, the Lord said, this is not about your physical sight, this is about spiritual sight. Do you want to believe in the one who has the power to heal you? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Remember, he hadn't seen Jesus. He was blind and then had mud pie on his eyes. And now he came back seeing, and he saw Jesus for the first time. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Just remember not to raise your hands in church. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who, may see, who do see may be made blind. The Apostle Paul explained this judgment using a different illustration. 
He said, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And so the gospel is the aroma of life leading to life, opening spiritually blind eyes. And the gospel is the aroma of death leading to death blinding those who think that they see. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Apparently you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a Pharisee. They were stalking Jesus all the time. Where did these guys come from? Did they jump out of a doorway and say, now wait a minute, I've got a question for you. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. They thought they had spiritual sight, that they were saved because they were disciples of Moses. But by rejecting Jesus, they proved that they remain dead in trespasses and sins. Regarding the blind having no sin, one commentator paraphrased it saying, if you were not only without the light, but also conscious of this condition and anxiously yearning for salvation, no charge could be brought against you. And so it's the blind that Jesus comes to working on their heart, bringing them to faith in him. Christians are involved in a debate on precisely how a, a person has this light go on, how you come to Christ, how you become conscious of sin and your need for a savior. Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul says, regeneration precedes faith. And what that means is that you must be born again and then you can believe in God. So you're born again by his spirit, and then you believe in God. Our position and the position of, of many millions of Christians throughout history is that believing precedes regeneration. You believe, you have faith, and then you are born again. Now here are two strong reasons why we believe that, uh, what we do. First of all, there's no scripture that directly says regeneration precedes faith. It is a logical deduction that is made necessary by a certain system of theology. There are many, many, many verses that affirm that you believe and are saved. One example will suffice. It's from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It means that you become a son of God or you are born again as a result of believing, not the other way around. And if you get my notes later on, uh, there are like 14 scriptures that we cite at the end uh, that say the same thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the Regeneration Proceeds Faith group hold to it as an essential that you must believe. The truth is, nobody wants to admit this, but the truth is you can believe either of these positions and be a Christian. They're not heretical. They're just different ways of looking at the Bible. This might help you choose one over the other. If you think that regeneration precedes faith, then you also believe God predestined who would be saved. God overlooked the majority of human beings. He could have saved them by causing them to be born again, but instead he predestined them to perish in the lake of fire. No kidding, this is, this is really the position. Let's, let's say this is all of humanity, uh, and 20 of you are saved. Because in eternity past, God said you would be saved. He chose you. He predestinated you. That means all the rest of you are predestined to be uh, perish in hell. 
And there's no preaching of the gospel, nothing you can do to believe because you're not ever going to be born of God before you believe. And so uh, somehow they say that brings God glory. Uh, what it would bring to us is a life sentence or the death penalty. <laughs> you know, I, I could have saved you, but I chose not to for my own glory. If you think that faith precedes regeneration, then you believe that the gospel is a genuine call to every human heart, to whosoever will believe, prepared by God the Holy Spirit to be saved. And uh, listen, I said this earlier, you can believe either way. Why would you want to believe the first way? Can I ask you that? What, what does it say about your personality if you want to say, well, yeah, you know, I believe in God and he, he caused me to be born again and then I believed and there's like the vast majority of human beings who are just going to go to hell. But you know what? That shows how glorious God is. Uh, I'm sorry. If I had to believe that, if that's what the Bible absolutely taught, sure. But it doesn't absolutely teach that. It also teaches, and I think better, whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have eternal life. And they say, well, how does that happen? How is it not man's free will? How does man not be in charge of his salvation? Because believing isn't a work. And the Holy Spirit, it's all of grace anyway. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to stick on this side of the fence, and I'm going to choose that. Tuck this away because over the last 15 or 20 years, People have been coming into churches and getting saved into this doctrine, and then they try and pull people away uh, and just think, hey, best thing to say at first is, hey, I've heard about this. Uh, you can believe that way, but, you know, I can believe this way. And, uh, and then we'll see what happens. A.W. Tozer writes, our Lord has given an invitation that excludes no one. Whosoever is as broad as the human race. Amen?